Uh, Okay, let's start with a word of prayer. Bow and pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. What a wonderful day it is to gather as the body of Christ and to worship you. You are worthy of all honor and and praise and and glory. And uh, that's what we seek to do today, Lord, to bring glory to your name. We thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you for all you've revealed of yourself uh, and of your great plan of salvation in your word. And we pray, Lord, that you would pour out your Holy Spirit on each and every one of us so that we could truly understand what you're trying to teach us from your word today. We thank you for your great love and, and grace and mercy that you showed to us, especially by sending Jesus to die on the cross for my sins and for the sins of all those who believe in you. We thank you, Lord, for who you are, and we worship you for who you are, and we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Okay, part six. Uh, Up to part six in our study of Revelation. Uh, This is going to be the letter to the church in Smyrna, the suffering church. And so we did two uh, weeks of introduction. Uh, Then we looked at um, a preview of the second coming. We looked at John's vision of the glorified Son of God. And then we looked last week at the letter to the church in Ephesus. And today we'll look at the letter to the church in Smyrna. So as I've been saying, I'll tell you what I'm going to tell you, then I'm going to tell you, and then I'm going to tell you what I told you. And so this is what I'm going to tell you today. So we're going to look at the letter to the church in Smyrna. We're going to look at who the correspondent is, who the church is that he's sending it to. We're going to look at the city that that church resides in. We're going to look at the commendation that he makes to the church. We're going to look at the command he gives to the church. And we're going to look at the counsel that he gives to that church. But first, a review of what we did last time. So last time we looked at the letter to the church in Ephesus, the first seven verses of chapter 2. Ephesus was praised for their hard work and perseverance, but they were criticized for forgetting their first love. And there was an exhortation, of course, to repent, and then the reward of the right to eat from the tree of life. That's what we saw last time. Um, we, we saw that there's an introduction to the letter. The writer's not named, but the description goes back to the previous chapter. Obviously, the, uh, the glorified Lord of the church. Um, there's some language in there that shows Christ as the author. Um, and that it's being given um, by Christ through John to this particular church. Um, Of course, the the glorified Christ in that vision in the first chapter has the seven stars in his hands. The seven stars are identified as the seven churches, um, as is the leaders of the seven churches. Uh, The seven lampstands are the seven churches. Um, And he's the sovereign ruler, therefore he has authority to address his churches. Uh, Then we looked at the particular church in Ephesus, and of course that church in Ephesus is mentioned many times in other places in the New Testament, especially in the book of Acts, we see that uh, the, the gospel was introduced in Ephesus by friends of Paul, and then Paul goes there, and he spends three years there. Um, and then Timothy goes there, and he's a pastor at Ephesus, and then others uh, follow along after Timothy. And then finally, we have in extra-biblical literature, uh, writings of the early church fathers that John went there 
later in life. So there's lots about Ephesus. There was a, there was a big emphasis on Ephesus in the uh, other writings of the New Testament, and they received lots of attention uh, from early, uh, from the very earliest time. Uh, the Apostle Paul going there for three years. Uh, we, we get uh, a description in Acts that um, large numbers of converts caused uh, great uproar in Ephesus. Uh, the craftsmen didn't like the fact that they uh, their idol-making business was uh, um, negatively impacted by uh, conversions to Christianity. Um, we saw all those sort of things, these descriptions in the book of Acts. And we see... Also, that it's the kind of the center of the worship of this goddess Artemis or Diana, and it's, so it's a, a center of pagan worship uh, in the first century. We start. We saw at the beginning of this letter that uh, this Greek word "no" oida "no" uh, indicates the Lord's knowledge, uh, and it, that's how the, each of the seven letters start. Um, and we get this pattern that before any sort of rebuking is done, there's first a commendation for what they're doing right. Um, they're diligent workers in the midst of uh, a pagan land, essentially. And through all those difficulties that they face, um, their uh, hard labor and patient enduring trials, uh, they refuse to tolerate evil, they persevere, they endure. That's the commendation part of the letter to Ephesus that we saw last time. However, the Lord also identifies a problem. They've left their first love, uh, and, he, and he gives them a, a prescription for how to, uh, to, to come back from this problem that he's identified. He tells them to remember where they've fallen from, to repent, and then he tells them to return to the deeds that they first did. Uh, and then the letter closes with an ex- exhortation. Uh, he who has an ear, let him hear. Um, and this this promise to is to overcomers and overcomers we talked about last time is all believers true believe, all true believers are overcomers and he promises to overcomers at Ephesus and of course all throughout time that they will eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God which is heaven so that's what we learned last time so a brief synopsis of what we did last time letter to Ephesus any questions before we launch into the letter with Smyrna Okay, this is the shortest one. This is the the shortest letter. Uh, This is the shortest passage that we'll spend a lesson doing. Only four verses, 8, 9, 10, and 11 in chapter 2. So if you take out your Bible or a device that has the Bible on it and turn to Revelation chapter 2 and starting in verse 8. Revelation chapter 2 starting in verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The first and the last, who was dead and has come to life, says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. So this is the word of the Lord that we're going to look at today, these four verses. So Smyrna, uh, so as we talked about before, uh, the, the churches are along the postal road. Ephesus was the first one, and then Smyrna and Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. That's um, the route that the postal service in that day went by. And so after Ephesus, next comes Smyrna. Uh, they have a praise. They're rich. And in what way are they rich? We're going to talk about that. Uh, criticism, none. So there's only two of the seven letters that have no criticism. There's no criticism of this church or the church of Philadelphia. The other churches all contain criticism. This one does not. There's an exhortation to be faithful, and there's a reward not to be hurt by the second death. Uh, I, I've once again extracted a... Um, a little portion of the, the beginning of this section in MacArthur's commentary uh, on this section of Scripture. So I'll just read to you what John MacArthur puts down to, uh, to introduce this section of Scripture. He says, Throughout its history, the seemingly paradoxical truth has been that the more the church has been persecuted, the greater has been its purity and strength. For decades, churches in the former Soviet Union in Eastern Europe were oppressed by their atheistic communist governments. Believers continue to be persecuted in Muslim countries and elsewhere to this day. They are forbidden to openly proclaim their faith. Many are imprisoned and some martyred. In the Soviet Union, books, even Bibles, were scarce. Yet not only did those churches survive, they prospered. The lifting of the Iron Curtain revealed a powerful, pure church, one characterized by genuine faith, deep spirituality, humility, zeal, love of the truth, and single-minded devotion to the Lord. Scripture links persecution and spiritual strength. Consider it all joy, my brethren, wrote James, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Peter encouraged suffering Christians with the truth that after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. The purest Christian graces are those forged in the furnace of adversity. The church at Smyrna displayed the power and purity that comes from successfully enduring persecution. Persecution had purified and purged it from sin and affirmed the reality of its members' faith. Hypocrites do not stay to face persecution because false believers do not want to endure the pain. Trials and persecution strengthen and refine genuine saving faith but uncover and destroy false faith. Though they suffered physical privation and poverty, the Christians at Smyrna clung to their immeasurable spiritual riches. Fittingly, the church at Smyrna is one of the two churches, along with Philadelphia, that received no rebuke in its letter from the Lord Jesus Christ. As Scripture makes clear, persecution and trials are an inevitable and essential part of the Christian life. The example of the church at Smyrna instructs all churches on how to properly respond when they come. 
Christ's letter of commendation unfolds in six successive stages. The correspondent, the church, the city, the commendation, the command, and the council. And so that's John MacArthur's introduction to the, um, this section of scripture, and I thought it was really good. So persecution uh, purifies true saving faith and, and churches. Okay, so let's take a look at this passage of Scripture. So it starts out with an introduction similar to all the other uh, letters and to the angel of the church in Smyrna, right? The first and the last who was dead and has come to life says this in introduction. So this was customary in ancient letters. The writer identifies himself at the beginning of the letter instead of signing his name at the end. So today, typically, we sign our name at the end of a letter. In those days, it was more typical to put your name at the front of the letter. And so this is a typical way, same as Paul does. He says he identifies himself at the beginning of his letters. Um, This depiction of the writer, of course, is very clear. It uses language from chapter 1, from the vision that John had in chapter 1, to make sure everybody understands who it is that is the correspondent who is sending this letter. Um, first and last was dead and has come to life, identifies him as the glorified, exalted, risen Lord Jesus Christ, uh, using the language from the vision. Uh, the, the phrase, the first and the last, is an Old Testament title for God. We see that several times in Isaiah. And the application here to Christ affirms his equality of nature with God as deity, uh, as we mentioned last time as well. So Jesus Christ is the eternal, infinite God who transcends time, space, and his creation. And so it's very clear, he makes it crystal clear with the kind of language he uses, who it is that's uh, giving this letter to the church, and he's already established his authority holding those seven stars in his hand and walking amidst the seven lampstands. And yet we have this amazing paradox here. Uh, He is identified clearly as God, but somehow he died. So that's a paradox. Dead and come to life, here's the profound mystery. How can the ever-living God, um, who transcends time and history and creation, how could he die? And of course, we know the answer to that mystery, that he died in his incarnate humanness, as the perfect sacrifice for sin, but now has come to life, his resurrection, and lives forever, according to the power of an indestructible life, as Hebrews chapter 7 puts it. And so this is the paradox, and Jesus puts it out there, his death and his resurrection, all in this introduction to this this letter. So, and, And of course, knowing that they were undergoing difficult times, He was reminding the church in Smyrna that he transcends all these temporal matters. They're going through extreme persecution. They're going to go through more persecution. He's reminding them them who it is who holds the seven stars, who it is that walks among these lampstands, the one who was dead and is alive uh, uh, forevermore. He's reminding the church of that, uh, his transcendence. And should they face death at the hands of their persecutors, beside them is this one who has conquered death um, and who had promised in John chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. John chapter 11, that's when uh, Jesus is talking to Martha 
uh, at the time of uh, when he, right before he raises Lazarus from the dead, from the dead, he's he's talking to Martha, if you remember beforehand, and uh, Martha comes out and she's weeping, and and Jesus makes this proclamation to her before he raises Lazarus from the dead: "I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, even if he uh, will live, even if he dies." Uh, and then at the end of that, that, after he says this, he turns to Martha and he looks right at her and he says, do you believe this? Do you believe this? Um, and then he goes and raises Lazarus from the dead. And so this is the one who is addressing this church in Smyrna. So, of course, this Jesus also endured the most unjust and severe persecution anyone has ever suffered. Uh, we see that in Hebrew chapter chapter 12. So he can serve as a compassionate and understanding source of power for the, his followers, for his church. He is the one who addressed this letter for of comfort and encouragement to this church in Smyrna. So this is the point here of this introduction. Uh, scripture does not record the founding of the church of Smyrna. So we get lots and lots and lots about the church in Ephesus and other places in Scripture, especially the book of Acts, uh, but nothing about Smyrna. Uh, we, we don't, the, book of the, the church in Smyrna is not mentioned in the book of Acts, for example. Uh, all that is revealed about uh, the congregation is contained in this letter, these four verses, that's it. That's, that's all we have in the Scriptures about Smyrna. Uh, presumably, we have to guess, uh, a church was planted in Smyrna during Paul's Ephesian ministry because it's right there close to Ephesus, just north of Ephesus. And so uh, we can only speculate that a church plant was made from, from Ephesus um, during Paul's Ephesian ministry, either by Paul himself or by his converts uh, planting a church there. But we don't know. Uh, nothing known about the church of Smyrna. Uh, at the end of the first century, life was difficult and dangerous for the church at Smyrna. That comes out in these four verses. The city was uh, long an ally of Rome. It's famous in extra-biblical literature for being uh, a very close ally uh, to Rome. It was a hotbed of emperor worship. And under Emperor Domitian, it became a capital offense to refuse to offer the yearly sacrifice to the emperor. So a sacrifice of worship to the emperor, if you did not make that sacrifice to the emperor, it was uh, capital punishment, the death penalty for not doing that. And so we have recorded in extra-biblical history that many Christians faced execution because of that in Smyrna. Uh, and the most famous of Smyrna's martyrs was Polycarp. Uh, executed half a century after John's time. So about 50 years after the, this book was written, uh, a man named Polycarp, uh, who was a disciple of John's, uh, was executed in Smyrna. Uh, the Greek word Smyrna uh, was used in the Septuagint. So the Septuagint is a Greek translation of the Old Testament. Uh, so I mentioned this before, uh, Hebrew was kind of a dying language as we approached the time of Christ, and, um, and the Hebrew scribes were concerned that fewer and fewer people could read Hebrew, and so they made a, an official, formal translation of the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek. And so when we look at Greek terms in the New Testament, we can actually compare to uh, Old Testament terms by using the Septuagint. And so this word Smyrna 
in Greek is actually used in the Old Testament translation, Greek translation, Septuagint, uh, to translate the Hebrew word for myrrh, uh, a resinous substance used as a perfume, both for the living in Matthew chapter 2 and for the dead in John chapter 19. Its association with death perfectly pictures the suffering church at Smyrna. Myrrh is produced by crushing a fragrant plant. The church at Smyrna, crushed by persecution, gave off a fragrant aroma of faithfulness to God. At Smyrna, yes? Yes, gold, frankincense, and myrrh were the three gifts that are identified at, uh, that were brought to Jesus at his birth. Um, yeah, that's right. At Smyrna, unlike Ephesus, there was no waning of love for Jesus Christ. So at Ephesus, this other church, there was this, you'd lost your first love. There's no indication of that here with the church in Smyrna. The believers at Smyrna loved him. They remained faithful to him. Because of that faithfulness, they were hated. And because of that hatred, they were persecuted. But that persecution incited them to love Christ more. Uh, they did not lose their first love because of the persecution. Uh, the city of Smyrna itself uh, was an ancient city. Uh, the origins are lost in antiquity, but there was at least a Greek settlement there dating back to at least 1000 BC. So it had been there a long time. Uh, it, there was probably inhabitants there before the Greeks uh, coming out from the, whoever the original uh, inhabitants were coming out from the Tower of Babel. Uh, but it, there's a record of a, of a settlement there by the Greeks going back to at least 1000 BC. In about 600 B.C., Smyrna was destroyed by a people called the Lydians, and it lay in ruins for 300 years. So 600 years it's destroyed, and it just sat there as ruins for 300 years, and some of the successors to Alexander the Great um, rebuilt it in 290 B.C. So it had been just ruins lying around 300 years for longer than the entire existence of the United States. It was just ruins. And then somebody came along and rebuilt it in 290 B.C. And that rebuilt city was the Smyrna that was there in, in John's day. As I mentioned before, it was uh, famous as a staunch ally of Rome, uh, going back to the early days of Rome. Uh, in fact, its citizens were so infatuated with Rome that in 195 B.C. they built a special temple for the worship of Rome. And so they had official Rome worship going all the way back 200 years before Christ. So this was a city that was really serious about their infatuation with Rome. Um, and of course, Rome um, uh, recognized that and realized that, hey, this city's uh, really, really, really for us. And so when it was time to choose a place for a special temple for the emperor Tiberius, Back in 26 AD, uh, Smyrna was chosen as the location for this special temple. Uh, and later on, when there was an earthquake that destroyed the city of Smyrna in the second century, the emperor Marcus Aurelius rebuilt it. Uh, he took funds from the Roman government and rebuilt that city because it was such an uh, important city to Rome. So that's the background. Uh, so Ephesus and Pergamum uh, 
probably surpassed it in political and economic importance, but Smyrna was said to be the most beautiful city in Asia. So there's lots of old writings about how beautiful this city was, a place to, to go and see. Uh, it was located on the Gulf in the Aegean Sea, uh, the, the west coast of what is today Turkey. And unlike Ephesus, it had an excellent natural harbor. So Ephesus, the, the river silt kept filling up the harbor, but uh, the, the, the harbor at Smyrna was an excellent natural harbor. Um, it profited from the location at the western end of a road that went through the Hermas River Valley. Uh, in addition to the natural beauty, the city itself was well designed and laid out. Um, it had uh, roads that went around the slopes of this hill called the Pagos. Um, and on top of that hill, the Pagos, was all the temples and other public buildings. Uh, and the streets were laid out very nicely with uh, uh, groves of trees along the roads. And, and that was unusual for the time. And so it was something that people went to see just to see this beautiful city of Smyrna. The most famous street was called the Street of Gold, which curved around the slopes of this Pagos with all the temples up on the hill. Um, and they had these temples from one end to the other, uh, Temple to Sibylle, uh, and then Temple to Zeus, and Temple to Apollos, Asclepios, and Aphrodite, temple after temple after temple up on this hill that you could see, especially from this famous street called the Street of Gold, which went around the, the base of the hill. Smyrna was also noted as a center of science and medicine for the time. Uh, like Ephesus, it was granted the privilege of being self-governed, uh, self-governing to a certain extent. Um, it was said to be the birthplace of the poet Homer. So this was a famous city. Uh, it had all these uh, uh, claims to uh, historical significance, if you will. Um, and as I said, the, in the last time, the, the river kept silting up the harbor in Ephesus to the point where um, the city of Ephesus, the ruins of it, are now six miles from the ocean, and there's no city there anymore. Smyrna, on the other hand, is still a major city to, these, to this day. Uh, it's the Turkish city of Izmir. That's where uh, Smyrna was. Um, and so it's still there uh, to this day. Ephesus is gone. Smyrna is still there, in, in, in spite of the fact that the city's been destroyed a number of times, earthquakes, fires, uh, it's still a major city in, uh, in western Turkey, the city of Izmir. So, uh, so that's the, uh, the background to this letter. So what about the letter itself? So the letter itself starts like this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. And so we see, just like last time, we see nothing escapes the vision of the glorious Lord of the church. He knows every detail about the churches under his care. He's walking among the seven lampstands. He knows. He's there. Direct vision. He saw exactly what was happening, not only on the outside, but in the heart of the people of his churches, and he continues that sort of um, insightful vision uh, to this day. And so he sees into the heart of Hope Bible Church. Uh, he knows what this church is about, not just on the inside, but not just on the outside, but on the inside as well. 
That's the, the Lord who walks among the seven lampstands. He's right imminently present with his churches. Not only in the first century, but throughout all the ages, all the way down to today, he's right here walking amidst his lampstands uh, with his eye on his churches. Um, So he begins his commendation of those believers by assuring them that he knew their tribulation. Their tribulation wasn't lost on him. He hadn't forgotten them or abandoned them. He knew their tribulation. Sometimes it's easy to forget uh, if you're in the midst of some sort of a trouble or, or, or tribulation, does God really see me? Is God there? Is, is Christ with me? Well, he's, he's saying right here, he sees, he knows, he's there, he understands their tribulation. Uh, the Greek word, thlipsis, uh, tribulation, literally means pressure. Pressure. Uh, it's the common New Testament word for persecution or tribulation. They're under pressure. That's the, the word picture there. They're being pressed down. Pressure, pressure. Uh, the church at Smyrna was facing intense pressure because of their faithfulness to Jesus Christ. And he gives, and we have three reasons for the hostility that come out here. And we'll talk about each of those three reasons. First, as a leading center for the cult of emperor worship, the citizens of Smyrna willingly offered the worship that Emperor Domitian was now demanding of his subjects everywhere. So, in other words, emperor worship mandated from the emperor was actually new in the reign of Domitian. But in Smyrna, it was not new. In Smyrna, that was how they had been doing things for centuries, going back to 195 B.C. Um, and so the, the, you can just imagine the people of Smyrna being very zealous for this new law, the, law, the empire-wide law that said you must worship the emperor. They were very zealous to enforce that law, especially in Smyrna. And so that was a source of pressure for this church here in Smyrna. So the Christians willingly submitted to the emperor's civil authority, and as do we, Romans 13, 1 through 7, we submit to uh, the civil authority of the government instituted by God. They refused to offer sacrifices to him and worship him. Uh, Nothing in Romans 13 requires us to worship the civil authorities. In fact, uh, the, the whole rest of Scripture screams that worship is due only to the one true God, not to any man. And so um, they refused uh, to sacrifice and worship the emperor. For that refusal, they were branded rebels and faced the wrath of the Roman government, especially as applied there in Smyrna. So that's number one. Second, the Christians refused to participate in pagan religion in general. And so, as I mentioned, there were all these temples on the hill uh, to all these different gods. Uh, And Smyrna worshipped them all. Zeus, Apollo, Aphrodite, Asclepius, uh, Sibeli. They worshipped them all, and the Christians didn't worship any of them. So in general, they refused to participate in the worship of these gods. So the the Christians' rejection of this whole pagan pantheon of idols, coupled with their worship of an invisible god, 
So the Christians had a God that didn't have a temple with a big statue there that you could look at. Uh, so they're, in, they're worshiping this invisible God, and that caused them to be denounced as atheists, as godless, because they didn't worship this whole pantheon of gods. And much of Smyrna's social life was revolved around pagan worship, and Christians were viewed as antisocial for refusing to participate in it. So here's these people that refuse to worship the gods, the, those, those godless, this godless group, and they were therefore also social outcasts as well because of it. And finally, at Smyrna, they were facing this other challenge, uh, blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Uh, that shocking statement affirmed that those Jews who hated and rejected Jesus Christ were just as much Satan's followers as pagan idol, idol worshipers. Uh, Jesus uses the strong term blasphemy here. Remember, this is a letter from Jesus. This is what Jesus says. The strong term blasphemy usually reserved for hostile words against directly against God. It indicates that these slanderers, uh, these uh, anti-Christian Jews, it indicates their extreme wickedness and the intensity and severity of their persecution of the church. Uh, Sadly, this kind of hostility from Smyrna's Jewish population to Christianity was not new. Uh, We see that over and over and over again in the book of Acts. Uh, We see uh, anti-Christian persecution from of the Jewish population at various places in in the book of Acts in chapter 2, chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 12, chapter 13, 14, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, and 23. So over and over and over and over and over again in the book of Acts, we find that those of the, the Jewish people that were God's people who had rejected the Savior were particularly hostile to those who had accepted their Messiah. Uh, Particularly hostile. And so we see that here in Smyrna, but it's nothing new. It's what we've seen over and over and over again in the book of Acts. Persecution in the church of Smyrna reached its peak uh, shortly after, about a half a century after this letter, with the execution of its aged bishop, Polycarp, in which the unbelieving Jews played a major role. And I, I put a second uh, 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 excerpt from a second century document in the files on Hope Book, if you want to take a look at that. It's a description of a, a document that was written in the second century about Polycarp's execution in Smyrna, and you can read about that there. Although I won't vouch for every single detail in there, like a dove flying out of his head and things like that. <laughs> Maybe... <laughs> Maybe that really happened, but I'm not so sure about that. Uh, remember, that is an extra-biblical document. That's not in Scripture. That's, that's somebody writing sometime after uh, about Polycarp's execution. I think we can be pretty... Um, it's pretty well-grounded, I think, that he was executed there in Smyrna. Some of those details about the dub and things like that, maybe not. And, and one of the details in that document, if you'll see, is they lit the fire and it wouldn't burn him. Um, could God do that? Oh, yes, He could. Yeah. Yep. 
and didn't burn up the bush. Yeah. All right, but we have this persecution uh, in Smyrna. Um, and so and then we have the back, uh, we have also this, so we have this tribulation. Um, but the Lord was also aware of their poverty. Uh, he particularly mentions their poverty. And so there are different Greek words for poverty. Uh, there's one Greek word, penes, uh, which denotes those who struggle to meet basic needs. But the word used here is tochaya. And that is a much stronger Greek word about poverty. It describes beggars who live, who live not by their own labor, but by alms of others. In other words, they have no means of supporting themselves at all. Uh, this is a, 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 the harshest word that you can use for poverty. Very extreme poverty. So that you can't do anything and you can only beg. Uh, that's tokaya. Um, and so that's the word that Jesus uses here to, to, um, to describe their physical circumstances. Extreme poverty. So read that as extreme poverty here. Um, and then there's a parenthetical expression, but you are rich. Well, how can that be? How can they be so poor that the only way that they can survive is by begging, but Christ describes them as rich? Um, so, first of all, their, their physical um, circumstances. Many of the believers at Smyrna were actually slaves. Most were destitute. Those few who had owned possessions undoubtedly lost them in the persecution. Um, they weren't worshiping the emperor as the law required, and so uh, away with their possessions. Um, so they had every reason, humanly speaking, to collapse extreme poverty, extreme persecution, and pressure. Instead, they remained faithful to the Lord, um, never leaving its first love like Ephesus did. And for that reason, Jesus said that they are, you are rich. And so in what way are they rich? They're spiritually rich. They're in extreme poverty as the world sees things. But as Jesus sees things, they are rich. And he points out to them you're rich in the way that it matters the most. In the most important things, what really matters, salvation, holiness, grace, peace, fellowship. And you've got me, Christ is saying. I'm here walking among the seven lampstands. I'm here with your church, and therefore you're rich. No matter what your physical circumstances of extreme poverty may be, you're rich in the way that matters the most. So in other words, more so... Uh Thinking of those things that are eternal. Yes. Christ is pointing out that in, in terms of the eternal things, you're rich. You have riches in heaven, essentially, is what he's saying right, right here to those people in Smyrna. And the persecution is temporary. And we'll see that here in a second. It's, it's really temporary. But their riches are secure and eternal in heaven. That's really what Christ is saying here. Poverty is temporary, but the riches are eternal. Um, and so they are, in fact, really rich, in spite of the fact that most of them are slaves, they're destitute, have nothing, reduced to begging. They're rich with riches in heaven. What's where the joy, joy has come from that. Right. Can you imagine, you know, being bored, poverty like that? Yeah, being... Still at the same time, you know, 
Yep, absolutely. And so we've seen that, and uh, we've actually seen that in churches under extreme persecution in the past, in, in various places, in various times, that uh, they've been able to experience great joy in the midst of great persecution because of this kind of promise that they have from Christ, that they've got riches in heaven. Um, and so there's a, a really stark contrast here. Your poverty, especially that that particular Greek word for poverty. Yes. Wow, that's a, that's an amazing thing. Did everybody hear what Ann said? That she visited a church in China, and she was telling them, comforting them by saying, "Hey, the church in America is praying for you because of your persecution." But their response was, "We are praying here in the." persecuted church in China that you will experience persecution in America because it brings such joy and blessing. Um, that's an interesting perspective to have uh, churches and other places praying that we would experience persecution here in America. Um, yeah. Thank you for that. <clears throat> All right. And then he continues um, he says to the church, this is Christ saying to his church in Smyrna, do not fear what you are about to suffer. So he tells them, I know all the suffering you're about to, you have experienced. And then he comes with this. Don't be afraid about what's coming. So he's telling them that something really bad is coming, even worse than what he's been experiencing. But he says, don't be afraid of it. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. So after commending them for faithfully enduring persecution, Jesus warned the believers that more was coming. Um, So gut punch. You're, they've, they've been holding up under this pressure of persecution, and, and Jesus says, and oh, by the way, there's more coming. Um, yeah, there you go. Uh, but he puts it in, in a certain way, though. Notice that the first thing he says is, do not fear. Um, now, that's a, a very common command in the Bible. I think it's over 500 times in the Bible. Don't be afraid. Do not fear. Over and over and over again. Um, And so if something is a theme like that throughout scriptures, we know that it's important and we know that it's in there because God knows that it's an issue for us, that we have this issue of fear. Um, And so even before he comes with, you're about to suffer, he he, he starts it out by saying, don't be afraid. Do not fear. Um, you are about to suffer. And so um, Jesus warning them, hey, there's more coming. Uh, I know you've suffered. I know your tribulation. Don't be afraid. More is coming. Before specifying the nature, he commanded them not to fear uh, what they were about to suffer. He would give them strength to endure it. Um, and he had warned about this in the past. And so when he was talking to his disciples in John chapter 16, he said, In the world you will have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. Um, and so this was not new uh, for, for his followers, all the way back to his earthly ministry and Christ talking to his disciples. Uh, and so he, he gets a little more specific. 
He, he specifically tells them the devil was about to cast some of them into prison, and that cast is uh, the Greek uh, um, tense that says cast and keep on casting. Uh, cast and keep on casting you into prison. So one after another, one of them is going to be thrown into prison is what he's, what he's saying there. Um, and he's permitting that imprisonment so that they would be tested. He specifically says that they would be tested. Um, and by successfully enduring that trial, they would prove the reality of their faith and be strengthened. Second Corinthians chapter 12. And prove once again that Satan cannot destroy genuine saving faith. Genuine saving faith uh, is only tempered by fire. It's not destroyed. It can't be destroyed by anything that Satan does. So the supernatural battle that's taking place here in Smyrna is just one skirmish in the, the war all along the ages that Satan tries to wage against God and his people. It's always been Satan's plan to attack God's children, attempt to destroy them. Um, and that's why one of the titles for Satan in Scripture is accuser of the brethren. His attacks on God's true children, however, could never succeed. Uh, Jesus declared... I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. That's Jesus told his disciples that in, in John chapter 10, in his earthly ministry. And so this is the, um, the nature of salvation. The nature of salvation that's taught throughout Scripture is that no one can snatch someone who is, uh, has had experienced genuine saving faith and is then therefore in the hands of the Savior. Uh, the clear teaching of Scripture is no one can snatch them out of the hand. And so no matter what Satan does, someone who's experienced true saving faith can never be snatched out of the hand. And so this is the teaching that uh, Christ gives to his church there in Smyrna. And of course the Holy Spirit has it recorded here in Scripture for every Christian of all times to be able to read and to understand um, that, that we today at Hope Bible Church that are, uh, have experienced true saving faith, no one can snatch us out of the hand of Jesus or his Father as well. And of course, Romans 8, 28 and 29, Paul traces the unbreakable chain from foreknowledge to predestination to effectual calling to justification to glorification. Uh, no one is lost along the way. All who are called will be kept until they are made like Christ in glory. And so we have this promise that goes throughout Scripture. And Christ is kind of reminding the church there in Smyrna, they're, they're under this intense persecution and he's telling them more persecution is coming but it's a test of their faith and we'll see the promise at the end uh, that, that the second death can't touch them no matter what happens even if they're killed the second death can't touch them any questions before we go on yes so it's the ten days and so we're going to talk about that here. So there's been, um, it, we'll, we'll get to that in just a second here. Yeah, so um, there, there are people, people that have um, um, seemed to be followers of Christ and have since, and then turned away. And so uh, because we know that somebody who's experienced true saving faith cannot be snatched out of his hand, if somebody truly 
walks away from the faith, then, then what do we know about that person? We know that that person did not have saving faith. And when we see descriptions of false faith in, in the scriptures, we see it in, in James. That's what James is talking about. Uh, faith without works is dead. He, he's talking about false faith, fake faith, um, and how to, tr- how to, if you can, how to identify false or fake faith. Right. Exactly. So we have other descriptions in the New Testament about false faith. Um, and so that's what we can discern, but only after the fact, many times, if somebody turns away that was false faith. Yes. Yeah, so that's the, that's the the teaching of scripture. I mean, you, you see that there is a battle between the spirit and the flesh for those that are saved. Uh, Romans chapter 7. Paul describes that kind of battle in his own life um, with uh, with the flesh. And so we experience that. We experience battle with the flesh. We experience times where we sin. Uh, we disobey, and um, the clear teaching of Scripture is that we repent, and He's faithful to forgive our unrighteousness and restore us. And so that is the pattern of those who are tr- have true saving faith: is that you have a process of sanctification where you're conformed to the likeness of Christ, and um, and that we have. Times when we are um, growing more or growing less, um, and times when we are more faithful, and times when we are less faithful, um, and we have times when we fear, um, and and there would be no reason for God to over and over and over again say, "Do not fear." If fear wasn't a problem, yeah, Larry, <clears throat> yeah, that's that's a lot of grace right there uh, to have somebody stoning you and to think about their uh, salvation. Um, th- there's one more point about that grace being sufficient. So, of course, we have the example of the Apostle Paul. He had some sort of a thorn in the flesh. He prayed very fervently to have it taken away. It was something that was obviously bothering him uh, to the point where he's crying out to the Lord to have it taken away. And the answer was, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. And so what, whatever it was that was physically weakening Paul was actually bringing glory to the Lord. And Paul was able to, once he got the answer from the Lord, go ahead and perform his ministry in spite of whatever this... Uh, thorn of the flesh was, and to um, and to joy, have joy in the fact that he had was was suffering for Christ, uh, because the grace he had been given grace, uh, and God had told him, "My grace is sufficient for you to go on ministering in spite of this thorn in the flesh." Yes, and right. So this is the teaching that Christ has been giving, and in this particular circumstance. He's warning them that there's, even though he knows that they've been under a severe pressure and persecution, more is coming. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid because more is coming. Um, 
So, um, God who alone sovereignly controls all the circumstances of life would not permit Satan to torment the Smyrna church for long. Jesus promised that they would have tribulation for ten days. Um, so let's talk about the ten days. So, uh, of course, Revelation uh, from a macro perspective is a prophetic book and uh, it has lots of symbolism in it. Uh, but think about what this is. This is an epistle to a certain church. Uh, this is not chapters 4 to 22. This is chapter 2. Um, and this is Jesus writing an epistle to the church, like Paul writing an epistle to the, the, uh, the churches he wrote epistles to. Typically, you wouldn't expect that kind of symbolism to be in an epistle. Uh, some see the ten days as symbolic, representing everything from ten periods of persecution under ten different Roman emperors to an undetermined period of time to a time of ten years. And I read a lot of different commentaries about this. And it seems to me, from the, 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 the most reliable commentary, I think, is the one by Thomas, Robert L. Thomas. And he goes through each of the possible interpretations of this. Um, and he, I think he does a really good job of it, of explaining why none of those actually fit exegetically with this passage of Scripture. And so his conclusion at the end of a very lengthy discussion of all the different possibilities is, there's no reason to believe this is anything other than ten actual days. And so Jesus is writing to this church to say, I know you've been under this persecution for a long time, and there will be this period of very intense persecution where they're coming and arresting one after another of you, but it's only going to last for 10 days. Um, I think that's what he's saying here. Uh, others disagree, but I think, uh, I think it's 10 days. Uh, they're going to have this really burst of extreme persecution for a very short time. Satan's major assault on that local church will be intense, but brief. As previously noted, Christ has no reprimand for the faithful church at Smyrna, like he did for Ephesus, and like he will for subsequent churches that we study. There is no reprimand here. He closes the letter with some final words of courageous, uh, of encouraging counsel. Those who prove the genuineness of their faith by remaining faithful to the Lord until death will receive as their reward the crown, Stephanos, the victor's crown, of life. The crown, this reward, culmination, outcome of genuine saving faith is eternal life, the crown of life. And perseverance proves the genuineness of their faith as they endure suffering. Uh, the scriptures teach that true Christians will persevere. Now, the persevere is not what saves them. The perseverance is an indication of their salvation. That biblical truth was understood by the authors of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith says, They whom God has accepted in his beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his Spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. Yes. So, uh, it's quite possible that there were 
a number of executions that occurred over this 10-day period. Um, that the, taken off to prison, the, that the, uh, the end result of that imprisonment was execution because this um, emperor worship edict the, it carried with it the death penalty. And so if they were told, worship the emperor or die, and they said, we won't worship the emperor, well then, they died. And so, yes, I think that's probably indicated here that these arrests probably in many cases resulted in execution over this short period, this burst of real persecution, extreme persecution that Christ is talking about that's just about to come. So about to suffer. It's really imminent. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think this is an absolute indication that Christ is sovereign over not only everything, but the fact that this particular round of severe persecution is under my control, and I say it's only going to be 10 days. Uh, I think that's absolutely the case. Yes, right. They don't. They, they only have Christ. That's all they have. But Christ is saying, this persecution, it's coming, but I'm telling you, I'm going to stop it in 10 days. Um, and what I say goes, no matter what the, the civil authorities say, uh, I've got an end date for it that I will sovereignly um, impose. Okay, so uh, then we have this final f- uh, phrase here at the end. He who, who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's how uh, that phrase is in all the, the, the end of all the letters. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Um, that phrase there is in each of the seven letters, the, the opening phrase of verse 11. Um, it stresses the vital significance of what God says in Scripture and emphasizes the believer's responsibility to heed it. Listen, listen to what I say. Uh, This is is the sovereign, risen, glorified Christ saying, hey, pay attention to what I have to say. Um, He who has an ear, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Um, So this promise of he who overcomes, and we talked about this last time, he who overcomes is clearly all believers, um, that he will not be hurt by the second death. So it's for this particular set of believers um, in the first century at Smyrna, but it's a universal principle also. Um, Christ is emphasizing a universal principle to these first century believers uh, that he who overcomes, um, uh, so w- what is it that overcomes the world is our faith. Um, and he will not be hurt by the second death. Though persecuted believers may suffer the first or physical death, they will never experience the second death, uh, which, of course, is not annihilation, but conscious eternal damnation in hell, which we see at the great white throne judgment uh, when those who are not written in the Lamb's Book of Life are tossed into the lake of fire. That's the second death, and what Christ is pointing out here is that his people, those who are held in his hand, will never experience that second death. So no matter what happens to them in this physical life, even if all the way up until that first physical death, they will never experience the second death. Um, He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Uh, Will not, um, this Greek word may, is the strongest possible negative in the Greek language. The strongest way you can possibly say that will never happen. 
uh, in the Greek language. It will never happen that those who are in Christ's hands will be hurt by the second death. Very, very strong in the Greek language. It'll never happen that somebody that has true saving faith would ever, 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 ever experience the second death. That's what Christ is saying here to his church in Smyrna. That's what Christ is saying to his church here today, including Hope Bible Church. Uh, The persecuted suffering at Faithful Church at Smyrna stands for all time as an example of those who have heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance, Luke chapter 8. Because they loyally confessed him before men, Jesus will confess them before the Father, Matthew chapter 10. And so uh, this is the letter to the church in Smyrna. This is what we learned today about who it came from, the church it went to, the city, the commendation he gave, the command he gave, and the counsel he gives to his church. Uh, Any questions? Right, so he's writing to a church that's in the midst of persecution. He's promising them more persecution, and yet they're rich. And the second death can never hurt them. They're, They're definitely going to heaven. Um, And so, yes, it is a a message of hope in the midst of what could be, from a human perspective, a hopeless situation. Here is a message of, all right, anybody else? Questions, comments? Yes. So she was talking about her own experience of persecution just for bringing a Bible home to her house and having her uh, mother throw her out of the house for possessing a Bible. And so um, the the world... um, Jesus promised that the world will persecute us, that they persecuted him, and therefore they will persecute us. But Jesus says, take courage, I have overcome the world. And so that's the message here. Um, Let me close us with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the words of encouragement that we find in your word, that in spite of persecution that we've seen throughout history, all the way back to the early church and going throughout history all the way to today, that in spite of persecution, that you are right there with your church, that you will never leave us and never forsake us, that you will be there with us even to the end of the age. We thank you for that one wonderful encouragement, Lord. Uh, We thank you for who you are. Uh, We praise and worship you as worthy of all praise and honor and worship. And uh, Lord, as we go to our corporate worship time, we pray that the worship that we offer you would bring you glory, bring glory to your name. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.